This week's reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have been repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are their eyes, that they see what you see. For I tell you, that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray once again that you would change our hearts and our minds, realign our priorities, that we would see things through your eyes, that we would live lives that will look wise in the light of eternity. For the glory of the Lord Jesus and for the good of all people. Amen. Now, by and large, uh, my generation has not had uh, what you'd call a great appreciation for the millennials. We kind of write them off as generation me, a flaky millennials. But I have to say, over the past few weeks, I've had cause to, to pause a little bit. Uh, 
you see, the younger generation, uh, iGen, millennials, whatever you want to call them, what is striking, I think, to me about them is that they, you, care. I think, by and large, my generation was just too cynical to protest or, or advocate or campaign about anything. We just thought, ah, nothing changes. But the younger generation care, whether it's Extinction Rebellion or Brexit or Black Lives Matter. They care enough to get involved in causes, to campaign, to protest, to demonstrate. They're willing to do so. Striking pictures in the last few weeks. My favorite of which, of course, was the, the, the Scottish protesters who, who were both protesting loudly and maintaining social distancing. I mean, that is impressive. But whatever you think about the particular causes that people are protesting and campaigning about today, there is something good and healthy and right about that willingness to get involved, that desire to make a difference. Now, we can, we can all agree that they're the rioting and some of the self-congratulatory selfies, uh, that's pointless. But the desire at the heart to see justice and to do something about it, that is a good desire. The desire to give yourself to a cause that really matters, that makes you live a fully human life. Well, what about you? What do you care about? What do you stand for? What, what thing are you living for such that, well, look, whatever else happens in this life, whatever else I do or don't achieve, so long as I've stood for this, so long as I have done something in this cause, my life will have been well lived. Does anything fit in that category for you? And if so, what? Well, Jesus Christ, in the words of Luke 10, calls us tonight, every one of us, to the greatest cause of all. He calls us to a life that pursues justice and hope and betterment unlike any other. He calls us to a cause that's not represented by a slogan, but by a person, Jesus Christ himself. And nothing is so worthwhile as spreading the kingdom of God. Nothing is so urgent as bringing others to know the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. It means rescuing people from the worst fate that there is. And it means giving people a future beyond their wildest imaginations. Now, let's be honest. At some, I guess some of us at this point will feel a little bit tricked and disappointed. You know, you'll be thinking, look, I was hoping you were going to get real about making a difference in this world. But here we go. Just another talk about evangelism dressed up differently. Look, we feel that way, I think, and many of us do, because we've lost perspective on life and on eternity. And Jesus Christ, in this passage, is going to restore that perspective. Jesus Christ, the greatest warrior for justice, the greatest liberator of the oppressed, the greatest advocate for minorities, will tell us what the greatest cause of all truly is. So first we see the greatest cause is gospel proclamation, then the second, the greatest tragedy is gospel rejection, and the greatest joy is gospel salvation. Verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to go to every town and place where he was about to go. 
In eight, chapter 8, verse 1, it was Jesus going out proclaiming the kingdom of God. In chapter 9, verse 1, it was the 12 disciples, the apostles, going out proclaiming the kingdom of God. And now here he sends out 72 others. And as they go out, he tells them they're going to face, or they're going to find a plentiful harvest, they're going to face vicious opposition, and they're going to have limited resources. Verses 2 to 4. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. And the right response we see here to to this plentiful harvest, the vicious opposition and the limited resources is to pray, to pray. I pray to God that he would raise up more messengers because there are more people to tell about Jesus than there are people willing to tell them. It was true then and it's sadly still true today. Uh, Did you know that even today, 2,000 years later, the Joshua Project estimates around 3.2 billion people on this planet have no meaningful access to the message of Jesus. Either they live in countries uh, where there's, there's no established church locally and there there are hardly any foreign missionaries seeking to reach in so pray that god would send more workers and think hard about whether you might answer that prayer yourself by going secondly pray to for protection from the vicious wolves again this has always been a reality the, the campaign group Open Doors advocates for persecuted Christians, estimates, and they're, they're a widely respected organization. There's no exaggeration with them, but they estimate that today, 245 million Christians live in countries where they face serious persecution for their faith, surrounded by vicious wolves. So pray. Thirdly, pray to for provision. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, talk about sending them out with limited resources. Uh, no money, no food, okay, no sandals. I mean, this is serious. Uh, he wants them to learn. Kingdom work will always have the king's resources. And they'll only learn that when they have none of their own resources. And so that's how he sends them. He'll provide the spiritual power and the physical resources for his people. Now, in verses 5 to 12, Jesus prepares these ordinary Christians he's sending out for the very different responses that they'll encounter. Verse 5. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those who are ill and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Some will reject, given the warning about wolves. Presumably the rejection will look pretty brutal but others will open their homes and their lives to the message of Jesus and the messengers who bring it. Do you see that phrase in verses 9 and 12? The kingdom of God has come near to you. As these messengers speak words about King Jesus, the king is there. The kingdom comes 
through the words they speak about Jesus, the king. Now, the kingdom of God is, is basically Bible shorthand for the world we all want. That's what it is, the world we all want. A, a place of perfect peace, perfect justice, and perfect truth. A, a place where all people flourish, where there's no a sickness to, to ruin life, no death to rob us of, love, of loved ones, no evil that brings misery. No, no systemic injustice that entrenches inequality. None of those things. It's a place where all flourish. The question is, why will it be like that? It'll be like that because King Jesus will rule over it. See, since the days of Adam and Eve, humanity has been trying to build the world we all want without God. And for all our impressive technological achievements, well, look at us. Uh, think of America. Look, I'm not pointing the finger at America because they're worse than everybody else. There are just some things that are more obvious when you look elsewhere. And I think America often is like us, but just in a more exaggerated form. The leader of the free world founded in 1776 on just the stunningly beautiful statement, we hold to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But for 250 years, that equality has in practice been denied to many people purely on the basis of the color of their skin. The world we want only comes with the rule of the God that we've all rejected. The creator who alone knows how, how the beings he's created will flourish best. And the servant king who doesn't abuse power but came to give up everything, even his life, to die to save the very people who would reject him, you and me. And here we see that kingdom that will spread to all nations. It grows as 72 bog-standard followers of Jesus, not apostles, just, you know, common or garden, ordinary followers like you and me with these, the same doubts and struggles with sins that you and I know. As those ordinary people speak ordinary words about Jesus, the kingdom of God comes with power. It's extraordinary. See, you can never be too ordinary to be useful for God. Because God's work is done by God's power, not our power. If you and I were only willing to speak about Jesus, we would see the kingdom of God work with power, even through us. The greatest cause is gospel proclamation. Secondly, the greatest tragedy is gospel rejection. Now, as Jesus prepares them for the rejection that they will inevitably face, as, as well as um, positive reception, he makes some of the most shocking statements that he makes at any point in his earthly ministry. Uh, we'll start back at verse 11. Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. This is what they say to those who reject. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, to understand what's going on, you need to know uh, geography and your Bible. Now, Sodom was a pagan town that was renowned for its sexual perversion and its injustice, its oppression of the poor. In Genesis 19, God destroyed it, raining down fire from the sky, probably a volcanic eruption. Now, Tyre and Sidon were two other non-Jewish cities on the coast, and they were famous for their greed, their oppression, and their general wickedness, so much so that all three of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they lambast those cities and promise God's judgment against them. So on the one hand, you've got three pagan cities that were proverbial for their wickedness and for the destructive judgment that God reigned on them. On the other hand, you've got three... Well, three... Jewish towns where Jesus began his ministry of all things. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. But three towns that by and large rejected Jesus. Now Jesus' point here is not that, oh, you know what, it's going to be okay on judgment day. God's just going to say, well, Sodom, Tyre, Sidon, what's a little bit of oppression between friends. He's not saying that at all. The point is, shockingly, it's going to be worse for Capernaum than it was for Sodom. Why, though? I mean, those pagan cities were unspeakably evil. Well, that's true, but when they pursued their depravity, they were silencing God's voice inside their conscience. When Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, when the people there turned out Jesus, they were silencing God's voice as he spoke in human flesh in front of them. They were rejecting the culmination of centuries of God speaking, telling them to prepare for the Messiah throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And here the Messiah came. They saw his miracles and they turned their eyes away. They heard him teaching God's truth and they stuck their fingers in their ears. There was God in human flesh stood in front of him and they turned away. Now remember, they're not just choosing to follow a different religious path. God is the only source of truth, of justice, of beauty, of purity. They are rejecting in Jesus truth itself, beauty, justice, and goodness. They are eternally aligning themselves against those things. The people of Capernaum looked at perfect goodness and said, we do not like what we see. We want none of that. Now, we are not them. This is a specific word for a specific people. We're not the Israelites of Jesus' day. But, but there is a principle here that should make some of us shudder tonight. The more you know about Jesus, the more you've heard the Bible taught the worse will be the judgment if ultimately you reject him. Maybe some of you, or certainly some of our family and friends, are in that category. Been around church for years, grew up with it all. But as adult life has begun, and the direction of life has started to be set, quietly but resolutely, 
They've turned themselves away from Jesus. It will not go well on Judgment Day for those who hear about Jesus and reject him. I mean, it'll be awful for anybody who is not trusting in Jesus and finds themselves facing the full justice of God with no one to protect them. But it will be infinitely worse to have had Jesus' offer of salvation repeatedly, clearly presented to you and to have rejected it. To have known the one who died for your forgiveness, the one who rose to give you life and to have pushed him away. To have turned away from light and life and set your face towards darkness for all eternity. If that is you, let me plead you before it is too late. Let me plead with you, turn back to Jesus. If that is your friends and your family, then please plead with them. Turn back to Jesus. As Jesus himself puts it, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? Lastly, then, the greatest joy is gospel salvation. Well, the team come back from the mission and they are amazed at all God has done. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, it's probably not the whole of their report, but it is the big news that they're buzzing about as they gather back with the 12 apostles and with Jesus. Jesus, demonic spirits, when we spoke your name, they just, they just fled. They fell in terror. Now, the mention of the, uh, the snakes and the, the scorpions in verse 19, it needs to be read in the light of demons in 17 and spirits in 20. See, Satan, the, the spiritual power in charge of all the forces of evil in this world, he's described throughout the Bible as the, as the serpent, the snake. And back in Genesis 3.15, God promises he would raise up one who would trample on the head of the serpent. So what is going on here, amazingly, is Jesus is saying, look, as, as you, you ordinary Christians go out and tell people about Jesus, demons flee in terror, like cockroaches when the light comes on. The arrival of Jesus on earth and the spread of his kingdom as people speak the good news about Jesus, it is Satan's D-Day. His defeat is now sure. Jesus will achieve that defeat when he dies on the cross and destroys Satan's power over us, and he will execute final judgment on Satan when he returns. But as the message of Jesus goes out and the kingdom of God spreads, Satan is being driven back. All of which makes verse 20 so stunning. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice your names are written in heaven. Terrifying demonic forces fall in submission before us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compared with having your name written in heaven it's just not that important that's real joy Jesus says it's not the power that you have through him that is the great source of joy 
It is the permanent possession that he gives you in the presence of God, part of his people in his paradise. That's the source of great joy. It's interesting, at this moment, we haven't got time to look at verses 21 to 24, but at this moment, it's the only time in all of the Gospels that we read of Jesus being full of joy as he sees Satan driven back and salvation going out to his people. The greatest thing about Jesus is not that he gives us divine power, it's that he brings us into the divine presence. But why, though, should we rejoice in this above all else? Why is having your name written in a book in heaven more exciting than having the power to drive out evil? Well, firstly, because of the alternative. The alternative to having your name written in heaven is to being cut off from God eternally. It is that binary. Ultimately, eternally, you're either with him or cut off from him. And to be cut off from Jesus means you have no access to the forgiveness he secured in his death and no access to the life that he secured in his resurrection. He is either everything to you or he's of no benefit to you at all. Do you know that experience of, of turning up to a wedding reception and you look through the lists uh, and you read them again and again and it's an awful feeling. It just pales into insignificance compared with what it will be like on judgment day to turn up before the throne of God and find your name is not listed in the book of those who trust in Jesus and are welcome in God's paradise forever. Listen to the chilling words of Revelation 19.15 at the end of the Bible. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. No wonder then, there is nothing more important than, than making your life about telling other people about Jesus, whether you, whether you go as a pioneer to people who've never heard and you don't know, or, or whether you go as a friend to those you know and love already. Given the stakes eternally, we'll want to be involved in telling people about Jesus so that they can become citizens of heaven, their name written in the only book that ultimately matters. But it's not just the alternative. You see, eternal life with God in heaven is not just about the joy of what you escape. It's also about the joy of what we gain. You see, to have your name written in heaven is not just a citizenship chart. It's adoption into a family. It means our surname is God's. We're part of his family now. Brought into the relationship for which our souls were designed. You know, we're made for a relationship. If there's ever been any doubt, lockdown has destroyed that. As we long to be reunited with those we love, uh, elderly parents that perhaps we wondered if we'd see again, uh, or whether it's lovers who engaged and, and haven't been able to get married, the, the longing for relationship has been intensified by that lack. God made us for relationship. And that longing, that desire, that design, it points to, to the most fundamental relationship. At heart, you and I were designed to know our creator God, to find ultimate, deepest fulfillment in knowing him as our God and Father. 
Augustine put it best back in the fourth century in his famous words, Oh, our God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So ensure your name is written in heaven. That's the first thing to do tonight. Put your trust in Jesus. I don't care, no, don't tell me, oh, I do all these things in ministry. It doesn't matter what you do. I don't care how spectacular the, the, the works you've done for God are. What matters is, is your name written in heaven? Do you trust in Jesus? This passage tells us about a battle. You see, all the battles we are seeing played out in this world, battles between good and evil, justice and injustice, they're proxy wars, echoes of the great war between Jesus and Satan. And people's eternal lives are at stake in that battle. And God calls us to play our part, to pick a side and to join the cause, to fight for truth and justice and life by spreading news of the king who alone can bring those things. So this week, commit to join the battle. Start spreading the good news of Jesus in your homes, your streets, amongst your friends and your Zoom meetings. We shout loudly on social media about the awful injustice of racism. Let's shout just as loudly about the much less popular truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust the King is able to empower you as you seek to serve him. Join his cause. Bring liberty to those living in the fear of death. Freedom from those oppressed by sin. Hope to those in need of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came to fight evil and to bring about the reign of good. Help us, we pray, to put our trust in him and then to join his cause so that others might know him and might know the greatest joy that there is in all of the cosmos, a relationship with you, our creator, in whose name we pray. Amen.